from Mississippi to Alaska, Oregon to Illinois, this is American Radio Journal. On this edition, do states have the right to regulate how social media companies moderate their platforms? Jessica Malugin from the Competitive Enterprise Institute joins us for a discussion. October 1st is the deadline for a new federal budget to be in place. But, of course, Congress has once again missed the deadline. Scott Parkinson from the Club for Growth has the real story. Should municipalities be able to seize and keep a home over a small unpaid property tax bill? Eric Baim of Reason Magazine explores the issue with Dan Greenberg of the Competitive Enterprise Institute. And seven months into the war, Ukrainian victory over the Russian invasion is possible. On this week's American Radio Journal commentary, Colin Hanna of Let Freedom Ring USA says it is a war Ukraine must win. I'm Loman Henry, and welcome to American Radio Journal. Big tech censorship of conservative viewpoints has raised questions over the extent to which social media platforms can moderate content and whether states can regulate the platforms. Jessica Malugin is director of the Center for Technology and Innovation at the Competitive Enterprise Institute. She is here to discuss the issue. Jessica, welcome back to American Radio Journal. Jessica, this entire issue as to whether or not tech platforms can be regulated by states is perking along, ultimately likely to be decided by the courts. There is a new lawsuit. Can you tell us some background as to what the issue is and what this new lawsuit is all about? This past year, the state of Florida decided it was going to try to put restrictions on these large tech platforms. So think Facebook, think YouTube, about what they are able to take down. So the political push behind this was feeling that these platforms take down an indiscriminate amount of conservative speech. And this was an effort to curb that practice. Well, of course, the platforms got together with their industry groups and said whether or not that's happening, regardless of what form the content moderation is taking, the fact that they are able to moderate that content is their First Amendment right. So you have the state of Florida saying that their citizens are being denied their First Amendment rights by having this speech taken down. But you have these platforms saying, hey, we're not in the business of free speech for citizens. We're a private company. We're not the government. That's what the First Amendment deals with. And in fact, if you curb our ability to decide what we say, the flip side of that being to not carry content we don't want to, that's kind of the other side of the First Amendment coin, you're actually violating those platforms' First Amendment rights. So this has bounced back and forth in the courts. um, And what we have is the most recent bounce which is after the 11th Circuit Federal Court said, yes, in fact, this is an unconstitutional regulatory law. These platforms do have a right to not carry the speech, which they do not want to carry, and went through it in great detail. The state of Florida now has asked the Supreme Court to take up the question um, in its next term next year. So that probably will happen because what you have over a couple hops away in Texas is that Texas instituted a similar law. It's not exactly the same, but it's along the same lines in that it wants to restrict the platform's ability to take certain things down. 
That's what both the Florida and the Texas law do. And the Fifth Circuit, who heard the Texas case law, said, actually, we love this case law and we don't have any problem with it. So when you have a split in the circuits like that between the 11th and Florida saying this is unconstitutional and the 5th over Texas saying this is perfectly constitutional, the Supreme Court eventually has to be the decision maker on that. And I think we'll likely see that next term. A competing situation here, Jessica. You have these social media platforms saying, well, we're not responsible for the content of what other people post. In other words, if they post something, we cannot be sued over what they say, yet they want to have certain rights here. Is this a bit of a contradiction? That's a great point. So what you have at the federal level is something called Section 230. And what that did way back in 1996, before they were even social media world as we know it today, they were just sort of these boards you could go to online. And what Section 230 says is, hey, big internet companies, you are not responsible for the speech of people who post on your platforms. The speaker of that speech is responsible in a legal way. So if you post something on Twitter, you're responsible for what you post on Twitter. Twitter is not responsible for that. And even if Twitter decides to promote what you're saying or take down what you're saying and moderate and do all these things to get its cause in it, it still isn't legally responsible for the content that other people say on their platform. So as you point out, some people have said, well, that's not, you know, that doesn't seem fair because in broadcast radio and other things, you guys get to decide what you say, but you're also legally responsible for it. But of course, social media works a little bit different because it's not, the platform isn't creating the vast majority of its content. We all are creating the vast majority of its content. So it would be practically difficult to hold those platforms responsible for that speech because there's so much more of it. It's a little bit different than when a newspaper publishes a letter to the editor. We're talking about billions of posts a day on these sites. So, and the other, I guess, sort of structural question is, does that mean if they are not legally responsible, do they have these same three species? And the quick answer constitutionally is they do. One of the first things you learn about studying the structure of the government is that your constitutional rights are not stripped away by statutes, right? The constitutional rights you have, your First Amendment rights, can't be regulated away uh, by Congress. So in this case, even though those platforms have liability protection from third-party users, they don't have their First Amendment rights not carry speech they don't want to stripped away by that. And I think that traditional media is sort of always irked by that, right? Because they're on the hook for the content they put out. But again, it's a little bit, you know, social media is not quite exactly the same thing as a newspaper or radio. And this is an example of how the courts and society is sort of working out, well, what are the rules for them? What applies from before that we've worked out? What's new and different? And that's what we're seeing bouncing around these circuit courts right now. Is Congress taking a look at this at the national level? Yes, they sure are. And that's an important distinction because just exactly because of Section 230 that we just talked about, these state laws are probably preempted. That's just how it works. Uh, The states have sort of chosen to um, ignore that and push through and see if they can do it. But the federal statute holds over the state statutes. It says that explicitly. But now, if the Congress were to act, that certain that hurdle would be taken away. This is certainly if the internet is an interstate commerce, I don't know what is. So that hurdle goes away. 
but you still have that pesky First Amendment, and you're still infringing on the First Amendment rights of these platforms to, this is less about saying what they want and more about not forcing them to say what they don't want to, which is, I think, um, a more nuanced issue and, and part of why this is all a little confusing for people who don't do it for a living. We have been talking with Jessica Malugin, who is director of the Center for Technology and Innovation that at the Competitive Enterprise Institute. Jessica, tell us a little bit about the Competitive Enterprise Institute. Also, you have written extensively on this and other tech issues. Where can folks go to read those writings? You can read all the great stuff. The CI, which is a free market think tank, pushes back on the out-of-control regulatory state in Washington, D.C. You can find us all at CEI.org. Jessica Malugin of the Competitive Enterprise Institute. Jessica, thank you for being here. My pleasure. Scott Parkinson is at the offices of the Club for Growth, where he's been keeping an eye on budget negotiations. Theoretically, at least, Scott, October 1st is the deadline for a new federal budget. And, of course, Congress got the job done on time, right? What do you consider the job is, is the big question here, because really Congress has been abdicating its appropriations and spending authority for a long time. Really, about two decades, we've had this broken appropriations process. You and I have talked about it many times on the show before, and this week's no different. The Club for Growth opposed the continuing resolution put forward by the Senate Democrats and House Democrats with the Biden administration. And we urge all the senators and representatives to oppose it. And there's a lot of different reasons why we, we took that posture. First thing I would say is throughout America, families are honestly getting crushed by inflation. And Congress is really doing nothing to address that inflation that's wiping out about a month of working families' salaries and buying power. And so this CR is really just meant to accommodate more spending in a lame duck omnibus appropriations That'll be loaded with even more money for President Biden's agenda that's causing this outrageous level of inflation. A lot of people might ask themselves, what's a lame duck and what's an omnibus? Well, an omnibus is when Congress puts all 12 subcommittees of appropriations into one big bill. This is basically funding all the discretionary elements of government with one piece of legislation. Now, there's automatic appropriations that are called mandatory spending. That's what we have with like Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, and all these anti-poverty welfare benefit programs that are baked into law and on autopilot. But Congress every year has to appropriate and, and authorize new spending for the discretionary level. So that's what they're doing right now. The continuing resolution funds government at current levels with a few exceptions. They, they tucked in another $12 billion for Ukraine aid. But the bottom line is what they're doing is they're setting up this big recipe for another Christmas wish list on December 16th. And CRs are used by what I call the Uniparty in order to allow for enormous spending deals at a time that's politically difficult for senators and representatives to oppose it. And, you know, when you're backing up against the Christmas season, uh, I think what we're headed toward is the biggest omnibus in U.S. history. So. Another thing to think about, going back to what a lame duck is, a lame duck is when you've had your elections and there's a bunch of, of senators, representatives that either are retiring or lost their election. In this instance, this isn't a presidential lame duck because we're only in the middle of President Biden's term, but it is a lame duck session for Congress. 
And the lame duck empowers these unaccountable senators and representatives that are retiring or lost. And coincidentally, the chairman and vice chairman of the Senate Appropriations Committee, Patrick Leahy and Richard Shelby, are actually retiring from the Senate. What what could they have on their way out but just one last hurrah uh, bankrupting America? And, you know, I had my grandma always used to say, nothing good happens after midnight. And in lawmaking, nothing good happens after a lame duck. I think for really 20 years, Congress is repeatedly refusing to engage in this meaningful appropriations process that would allow for single appropriation bills in order to avoid this year-end calamity that we always have on, is government going to shut down over Christmas? Are we going to close federal parks? What if people want to go to Yosemite for Christmas? Oh, their campers aren't going to be able to go inside. And it's just sort of this outrageous fear stoking that we have too often from the left and from the media. The hurricane, of course, has struck Florida. It's now moving its way inland and headed toward the Appalachian region here, Scott. Governor Ron DeSantis is, of course, in the spotlight, as any governor is. Taking a look at how this is being handled relative to the last major hurricane of this sort, Katrina, that that struck New Orleans, is Florida better prepared for this than what Louisiana was at that time? Well, it's impossible to be totally prepared for a storm of this magnitude. I think, you know, Hurricane Katrina was a destructive Category 5 that killed over 1,800 people and and caused about $125 billion in damage. We don't know exactly what the estimates are going to be out of Florida, but, you know, the news coming out uh, this week right now, it's just not good. That being said, I think Florida has been very well prepared. They had thousands of linesmen ready to restore power in, in Florida. And, you know, when you kind of think about the leadership capabilities that my old boss, Governor DeSantis, has, I think he's stepped in and, and he's been honest with the people about, number one, taking steps to evacuate, and then when it was too late to evacuate, making sure that they weren't putting themselves in even worse path of destruction and harm's danger. You know, you think about all the first responders down there in Florida that are really stepping up and, and all the volunteers that are helping mitigate flood issues and, and bring the water levels down. And, you know, I, I obviously send my prayers to everybody down there, especially on the Gulf side of Florida. But this isn't just the Gulf of Florida that got nailed. This is the entire state, you know, when you think about how big that storm was and what it did, especially the Fort Myers area. And, of course, heavy rains affecting other states throughout the southeastern and even mid-Atlantic part of the country. So, as you've mentioned, our thoughts and prayers are with all of those folks here. We have been talking with Scott Parkinson from the Club for Growth. And, Scott, a few words about the club. Well, Club for Growth is a membership organization based out of Washington, D.C. We're united in this idea of economic freedom, limited government, opportunity in America, liberty. If anybody wants to kind of check us out see what we're key voting on on Capitol Hill, what issues the club is is really fighting on. Our website is clubforgrowth.org, and our Twitter handle is at clubforgrowth with the number four. Scott Parkinson at the Club for Growth. Scott, once again, thank you for being here. Thank you. It is known as home asset forfeiture, the taking of property over even small unpaid property tax bills. Now, the constitutionality of the practice will be decided by the U.S. Supreme Court. Eric Baim of Reason Magazine learns more from Dan Greenberg of the Competitive Enterprise Institute. The Fifth Amendment of the U.S. Constitution requires that when government takes private property, it pays just compensation. But in some states, if you owe 
property taxes, you could lose not just the amount of money that you owe in property taxes, but actually all of the equity in your home as well. And that's what happened to 93-year-old Geraldine Tyler in Minnesota. It's an outrageous story, and it's one that is unfortunately all too common across the country, and that's what we're going to take a look at today. Hi, folks. I'm Eric Bain with Reason Magazine. Thanks for joining us on this edition of American Radio Journal. My guest today is Dan Greenberg. He is the general counsel at the Competitive Enterprise Institute, and CEI uh, is uh, now joining via an amicus brief a lawsuit that is seeking to uh, overturn, seeking to find unconstitutional this policy of home asset forfeiture. And he's here to walk us through all the specifics of that today. Dan, thanks for taking some time with us. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Tell me a little bit about Geraldine Tyler, the 93-year-old woman who's at the center of this lawsuit that CEI is now getting involved in. Well, Geraldine Tyler had a difficulty in that she had to move away from a uh, from a high-crime neighborhood. And she, she got an apartment, and what that meant was she was essentially paying two rent checks because she was still trying to keep up the mortgage on her place. And unfortunately, she fell behind on on one of her one of her payments, ended up uh, owing owing the county government about $15,000 in in unpaid property taxes. And so the the government seized the the residence that she owned. And unfortunately, what the government decided to do was uh after selling that residence in order to get the $15,000 in property taxes that she owed, the government took the entire value of her property, which was about $40,000, and it kept it for itself. And so, in, in other words, the government kept every dime of the, of the sale on the property, which I think is going to strike you and me and everybody else who, who understands how mortgages work as a tremendous injustice because Geraldine Tyler was entitled to all of the equity that she had put into the property. She, she owed her tax debt, sure, but the government was keeping not just the tax debt that she owed, but everything on top of that, all the equity that she had put into her, to her residence for years and years. And so when the government seized not just the $15,000 she owed, but the additional $25,000 that should have been hers free and clear, to me and to everybody else who's knowledgeable about the Constitution, that raises severe problems for her constitutional rights. As you probably know, the Fifth Amendment of the Constitution says that private property can't be taken for public use without just compensation. And it appears to me that she received no compensation at all for the home equity theft that she suffered. Yeah, this is like, it's a weird sort of mashup between two already awful ideas. Like civil asset forfeiture is a thing that I think most people are now aware of. It's become more of a story in the mainstream in recent years. Uh, And you've got eminent domain, which of course makes people really angry when the government takes, I think correctly makes people angry when the government takes private property and uh, and doesn't compensate or doesn't fully compensate oftentimes the uh, the property owners. And this is like a, a weird mashup of those two things. If you owe a tax debt, the government can take your property, not just to satisfy the debt, but also take all the equity in the property, too. That's It's, it's insane. It's crazy. Uh, you mentioned the constitutional issues here. We'll talk about that in just a second. Tell us a little bit about there's a lawsuit going on here that the Buckeye Institute in Ohio has initiated and CEI is now getting involved in, and this is uh, potentially uh, going to the Supreme Court, I believe, right? So, yes, this case is going up to the Supreme Court, and I think it really once you understand the nature of the, the history of uh, the idea of the Fifth Amendment and the history of the, the property rights that the Constitution protects, you appreciate 
what a terrible idea this is, and more particularly, what an extraordinarily unconstitutional proposal this is, even though it's law in about 10 or about a dozen states, depending on how you count it, I, I, I feel like there, there's a very good chance the Supreme Court's going to come in and say, this is obviously unconstitutional, it's obviously indefensible, and the government can't keep more money than, than it is owed. We all know that if I owed you $100, you couldn't seize $1,000 from me and keep the whole $1,000 as a private person. With Dan Greenberg, he is the general counsel at the Competitive Enterprise Institute. Uh, Dan, just about a minute or so left here, but you've, you've mentioned the constitutional issues here a couple times, and I want to finish on that because this really gets to the crux of, uh, of what is fundamental about the Fifth Amendment is that governments can't just take your property, which is what they're doing here. They are taking not just the debt that is owed, but taking the rest of the property as well. And it is wild to me that they have a way of justifying that. So the Fifth Amendment says government can't take property for public use without just compensation. It's very clear. It's in the Fifth Amendment. And the Supreme Court has said in past cases that there's a, quote, categorical duty, unquote, to compensate former owners of property when property is taken from them. There's a, there's a long line of cases that says people are not supposed to pay more than their share for public improvements. The, the lawyers for these states say that uh, when, when forfeiture takes place, it extinguishes all the property rights that are owned. But I, that's just indefensible based on a reading of the cases, the, the, the opinions the Supreme Court has issued, a reading of the, the plain language of the Fifth Amendment. John Adams famously said, that property must be secured or liberty cannot exist. And this is about as clear a case of the necessity to secure one's property and the constitutional guarantees, the importance of the constitutional guarantees to secure one's property, as you can see. Yeah, as you say, it's obviously there in the, the sort of historical record. The, this is exactly what the founders meant when they put that in the Bill of Rights in the first place. We're really glad that you guys at CEI and, uh, and of course, the people at the Buckeye Institute, several other organizations as well are involved in, uh, in fighting this uh, injustice. Let's just call it what it is. We are unfortunately out of time for today, Dan. Thanks for taking some time with us and walking us through that. Thank you. And again, that is Dan Greenberg. He's general counsel at the Competitive Enterprise Institute. You can check out his work and the rest of CEI's work online at CEI.org. You can follow our coverage of uh, cases like this and everything else in the news this week at Reason.com. For Reason Magazine, I'm Eric Bam. Catch me right back here next week on another edition of American Radio Journal. The future of the West hinges on stopping Russia in Ukraine, and victory is possible. So says Colin Hanna of Let Freedom Ring USA on this American Radio Journal Commentary. What can and should the United States do concerning the war in Ukraine? The devastation, both to Ukraine's physical infrastructure and its people, has been well beyond anything most people expected at the outbreak of the assault. Should we try to promote a ceasefire and then a truce of some kind? Or should we risk expansion of the war by continuing to supply arms in ever larger quantities in the hopes that Ukraine could actually win the war and defeat Putin and his somewhat depleted army? That question was posed, and in similarly hedged language, in a recent alumni call with a distinguished foreign policy expert who has served in the State Department and National Security Council in several democratic administrations and several foreign policy think tanks and policy institutes. He was also a fraternity brother of mine in college, so I will withhold his name and that of the university, but add that although we support different parties, 
We both love our country and agree that modern Russia is a very dangerous and malevolent force in the world. When the Russian army began massing troops and military hardware on its western border with Ukraine, many people thought that it was some kind of bluff to ensure that Ukraine never joined NATO. Others believed that a military assault would be executed at high speed and that poor, underfunded, and undergunned Ukraine would fall to Putin in a few days. When Ukraine surprised everyone with its stamina and zeal, most still considered ultimate Russian victory inevitable if Putin seriously pursued the war effort. Virtually no one I heard knowledgeably commenting on the war expected Ukraine to win. Now, seven months later, a distinguished foreign policy expert was asking a Zoom call of well-educated fellow alumni if the U.S. position should favor ending the war as soon as possible by urging the parties to declare a truce of some kind or continue to pursue the war at a very high cost in lives, homes, factories, money, and press on with massive arms deliveries, training, and financial support to help Ukraine win the war. Not long ago, such a question would have seemed absurd and naive. Another friend, the Heritage Foundation's Jim Carafano, published an opinion piece in the Washington Examiner this week in which he argues as follows, quote, It is in the interest of the West, particularly the United States, to see a free and independent Ukraine. Vladimir Putin's grand vision is to reabsorb the post-Soviet states, establish dictatorial control over Central Europe, and see NATO dissolve and all U.S. military presence removed from Europe. These goals are a death sentence for the transatlantic community. More sinister, they are fully supported by China, which would benefit from a weakened, divided, and distracted Europe. Putin is a menace and a global one, allowing him to prey on others without restraint while hoping he won't someday threaten even more vital U.S. interests is foolish in the extreme. Close quote. Mr. Carafano is right. A victory for the Ukrainians is now plausible, which it wasn't just a few months ago. A truce at this stage would be a partial victory for Putin, and he would spin it as a complete victory for Russia. China would be emboldened to mount a similar assault with some of the same bogus arguments about restoring an ethnic unity with regard to Taiwan. The true underlying issue is sovereignty. In our supposedly enlightened 21st century, no nation should be permitted to forcibly violate another's sovereignty. A truce or armistice would still violate the principle of national sovereignty if the foreign policy establishments of the left and the right were to agree on adopting this principle, and they easily could, then we must continue to arm and advise Ukraine to victory. Does President Biden have the spine to hold firm to such a position? If he doesn't, then the West will fall. It may take years, but the final fate is certain. We must stop Putin in Ukraine and do so decisively. 
This has been Colin Hanna of Let Freedom Ring for American Radio Journal. American Radio Journal is heard on public affairs-minded radio stations all across the country, including WDZYAM in Richmond, Virginia, KKIMAM and KXKSAM in Albuquerque, New Mexico, along with KERIAM in Bakersfield, California. American Radio Journal is produced weekly by the Lincoln Institute of Public Opinion Research, Incorporated. The Lincoln Institute is completely funded through the generosity of individuals, corporations, and philanthropic foundations, which underwrite the costs of this program. Comments and opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Lincoln Institute or of this radio station. Learn more about American Radio Journal and hear expanded versions of some interviews aired on this program, please visit our website, AmericanRadioJournal.com. I'm Loman Henry. Thank you for listening to American Radio Journal. American Radio Journal, lighting the brush fires of freedom. Freedom.